here we are three years into this with a virus that has evolved into something that for most people is a common cold. Shots that are expired because the variants they cover are all extinct. I mean, it's an absurdity that these shots are even on the market at all. And yet we're still seeing brilliant physicians and educators and scientists being attacked for simply calling out the truth. In this episode, I sit down again with pathologist Ryan Cole to discuss COVID vaccine autopsy patterns, excess death rates, what has actually been found in the vials of the mRNA vaccines, and studies looking at the difference between spike damage caused by the virus and the vaccine. There are two dangerous things in these vials. That's a lipid nanoparticle and a gene sequence that's making your body make foreign protein. We also discuss the curious emergence of what doctors are calling turbo cancers. What's happening is these cancers we're used to seeing, their growth patterns and their behavior are completely out of character. So turbo cancer is something that wasn't there and all of a sudden it's everywhere. This is American Thought Leaders and I'm Yanya Kelik. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Dr. Ryan Cole, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Great to be here with you, Jan. Thank you. So let's talk about spike damage. This is something that's been of a bit of a focus for you yes. recently. And, and a big focus actually at this conference. I see numerous people are, gonna be, are, are talking about it. Um, so, so what do we know at this point? There's so much literature surrounding the bad effects of this protein. So certainly the virus caused a lot of damage in a lot of individuals. But what we're seeing with the spike protein induced by the injections is it persists longer in the body. A normal infection, your body's gonna clear it in a couple of days or a couple of weeks, depending on your immune competence. But what we're finding with uh, this synthetic mRNA, it persists in the body longer. A lot of studies on that. And in addition to that, it's making spike protein at low levels for a longer period of time. The spike protein inflames the blood vessels. The spike protein uh, breaks some of the barriers in the blood vessels, allowing spike protein to leak into organs. It can leak into the um, brain tissues. It can show up in the heart tissues. It can show up in the adrenal glands. So the spike protein itself, wherever it lands, causes the body to become inflamed. And so it also triggers alterations in the immune response. So we're seeing a lot of immune suppression in individuals. We're also seeing a lot of autoimmune disease where the body attacks itself. So. I mean, that's the tip of the iceberg. There are so many things the spike protein does, 
these are things scientifically we all wish the agencies and powers that be would have studied before using humans as the lab rats for this technology. So unfortunately, that spike protein is a known, some people call it a toxin, uh, irritant, poison, whatever you want to call it, we know it causes a lot of bad inflammatory patterns in the body, which can lead to organ failure. So there's also been these reports of, you know, this mRNA appearing in mother's milk and being passed on uh, to children, newborns. But what do you make of this? Um, well, in the literature, it's, it is reported. And we know for up to 48 hours after injection that the mRNA itself was showing up in uh, the mother's breast milk. That means the mRNA can be transferred. Now, the gastric juices may break that mRNA down. Again, it's a synthetic mRNA. It may not. But also, we know the spike protein can be transferred in secretions and is being transferred in mother's milk. The, the other concern, and I showed some images in my presentation today uh, from my colleagues in Germany, that they've identified spike protein both in the uterine lining They've identified spike protein in the testes, in the sperm. But more concerningly, they've identified spike protein in the placenta. And the Pfizer data that recently came out, forcing their hand by the judge that made the Pfizer data um, release happen, shows that Pfizer knew that it was going to cross the placenta. And again, we know this isn't a benign protein. This protein has toxic effects. Have we seen? birth rate changes, miscarriage rate changes, you bet we have. Um, are there statistical increases in birth defects in animal models? Yes, there are. We never roll out a new modality on children and pregnant women. We know it's crossing the placenta. We know it's going into the baby. We know it's going into the breast milk. We know it's being consumed by the baby. But these are things that should be reported on and transparent across the media because people need to say, oh, if I'm going to do something risky to my body with a new modality and risk my next generation, I should have informed consent and the ability to say yes or no. So you mentioned there's a distinction between the spike in SARS-CoV-2 and the spike that's in the injections or in the mRNA or the genetic vaccines. What studies are being done with this? You mentioned the they weren't done beforehand. What's being done now? So in the laboratory on a, a small scale, I wish I could do more and could clone myself. Um, I'm looking at the protein deposition in tissues. And we have special stains we've used in pathology for years called immunohistochemistry stains. So what we do with the tissues is we look, it's a kind of a little lock and key pattern. And if an antibody binds to that spike protein, uh, we have another piece that makes the tail of the antibody light up. And then when we look through the microscope, we can see present or absent. So in the laboratory, we look for that spike protein in different tissues been looking for it in autopsy cases, um, sadly. But also in living patients, we've seen it in several cancers as well. And my colleagues in Germany that kind of pioneered this first, uh, Dr. Burkhardt, Dr. Moores, and others, um, have been looking also at these same patterns. Now we're comparing it to antibodies looking for virus, where we look for spike, nucleocapsid, membrane, and other tissues that would be present, or, or other uh, um, proteins that would be present, to rule out, is this virally caused, or is it spike protein caused? And the NIH had done some small studies uh, looking at a handful of patients early on, looking at proteins, and then suddenly stopped. There are some universities that have done some spike protein studies and a case report here and there. Uh, 
Um, there are not a lot of entities doing this, unfortunately. Uh, the reagents are commercially available from multiple vendors. It's not a new pathology technique. It's a, it's a known technique. Yes, you have to do kind of the validation and dialing of the process, but once you've done that, then you can proceed any time that a stain is requested. You can look, is this present in the tissues or not? Now, on a university level, Stanford, Harvard, others have looked for circulating spike protein in, in certain patients. Um, is there free spike protein that can continue to deposit in these organs? That's a different type of testing. It's not commercially available yet. Um, I, along with a couple of other laboratories, are working on that because that's the one question a lot of clinicians have. Does my patient still have circulating spike protein in their body that could be causing all these different inflammatory um, pathways and disease. How can you tell the difference between the, the two kinds of spike? Um, well, that's why we use the other uh, proteins to rule out is this viral or is it vaccinal? Um, because if it were spike uh, from the virus, then you would see other proteins from the virus present as well. So it's simple deductive reasoning. Now, what we're doing additionally uh, developing is uh, mRNA primers. The Pfizer and Moderna have subtle differences in their genetic sequence. So we're looking at uh, hybridization primers where we can take a sequence and then bind that to the tissue and line it, uh, light it up and see if the mRNA is also present still or the, or the complementary DNA um, in the tissues. And so been working with a couple laboratories developing that. That's coming. Uh, there have been some case reports in the literature where patients have skin lesions that have both spike and the mRNA in those shingles lesions and whatnot. Hmm. So on again, on the university level, it's, it, it's kind of funny and uh, you wonder why they do this very important study that shows here's a technique, here's what we're finding in the tissues, and then there's never a follow-up study. And, and in basic science, that's not very common. The study that showed the persistence of this synthetic mRNA in the human body and lymph nodes for up to 60 days, there was not a four-month follow-up or a six-month or nine-month follow-up on that study. So these basic science questions, in, in, the, in the private setting, it's harder to do these because this costs money. You go to the NIH and say, hey, we want to do this. Where's a grant for this type of study that should be done on humans, should have been done on animals, et cetera. There's not a penny to be had. And these big universities, if they do one that shows a finding that may not be convenient to the truth, even though that what they're publishing is very relevant scientifically, you don't see the follow-up studies. So it just begs the question as to why science the way it used to be done isn't being followed the way it should be. Well, and I understand that there's a lot of studies that are actually being done looking at long COVID and uh, you know symptoms and yeah, and there are a lot of uh, long COVID studies, and there are patients with long COVID, no doubt. But what needs to be teased out, and and I find this also uh, not slightly but overtly disingenuous in the literature, is when you look at these patients with myocarditis or look at these patients with chronic brain fog or, or whatever the long COVID symptom, the fatigue may be, when you go to the end of the study, they don't break down their cohort and say, well, X patients that had these symptoms in this study had COVID and X patients also had COVID and or were or were not vaccinated. They, don't, they never mention vaccinal status in these patients. And we know that if one had COVID and then was 
uh, urge to get a shot on top of their COVID recovery, which again, historically we never do. We, we used to recognize recovery from a disease as better than a vaccine itself. Um, these patients have hyperimmune responses. And a lot of these hyperimmune responses are what are leading to a lot of these chronic symptoms. But it's very frustrating. And I, I would love to see somebody point out, give, give me five studies, give me three studies, give me 10 studies, where they say, here's the long COVID symptoms. Oh, by the way, this number in this cohort were vaccinated, this number weren't. They're, they're, it's, it's being ignored. And that's not good science. I've never ascribed to malice that which can be explained by ignorance. But this is scientifically ignorant um, to not be doing good control groups and with a novel modality, a new gene-based biologic product, these injections, they're not doing good science that should be clear and concise, have a control group and tell the truth about who has these chronic symptoms, whether they've had one, two, three, four, five shots. Uh, it's incredibly relevant in terms of understanding what we need to know for the future. You read a lot of literature, right? I mean, this is kind of your, your, your thing when you're not sleeping in the middle of the night. Um, you're telling me that there are just, there aren't any studies that there, there, this there may be a handful of obscure ones where there's, you know, a small cohort. But if you look at these larger ones from a lot of the academic settings, um, highly funded institutions, um, it's the homage to the shot, and no matter what the study shows, by the way, get your shot anyway. Um, it's very frustrating to see that they're not breaking out these who got a shot. I mean, sure, these patients had COVID, but a lot of them had shots too. And so it completely muddles the science. What you just said, it feels preposterous to mm -hmm. me that someone wouldn't look at this very, very obvious factor that you, you, would, you would need to separate. Do you think... You mentioned, you know, never ascribe to malice, malice right? Yeah. But, but do you think that some of these researchers are just somehow blind to this, or is it malice? I think it's a willful ignorance. Um, nobody wants to be wrong. So I think part of it goes to ego. Um, you've heard me joke before, uh, a lot of doctors think MD means minor deity. A lot of us think it means make a difference. I always say, look, I'm willing to be wrong because if you maintain an open curiosity, you have a better ability to learn. And I think one of the biggest tragedies and deaths during the pandemic has been the loss of curiosity. And I understand in, in the medical profession, people are very busy, they're overwhelmed, we're over-regulated, there's too much paperwork, there's too much excess things to do within the practice, the, practice of medicine that has nothing to do with medicine. So at the end of the day, you know, my colleagues that may not be on the same page as me, I say, hey, did you read this or did you read that? And they're like, oh, I saw my patients, I'm done. And, and that healthy curiosity opens all these rabbit holes into, wait a minute, is this true or is this true or is that true? You've seen some of my talks where I love to open with a Mark Twain quote. The man who does not read has no advantage over the man who cannot read. And what I can comfortably say um, is a lot of my colleagues don't read. There used to be a joke in medical school, you know, how do you hide a $100 bill from a surgeon? You put it in a textbook. 
Um, because, you know, they're not going to crack that book open. They're not reading. You know, they will during med school and during their first parts of training. But after that, the, the science is always 10 years ahead or, or more of the practice of medicine. And it usually takes, unfortunately, this is another kind of joke in medicine, it takes a generation to die for medicine and science to advance. Because you get entrenched thinking and, and there's a, a block in the ability to say that the way I was trained may not be the most current. And you know, we do have to keep our continuing education going, but a lot of these doctors don't want to be wrong, so they, they get into a groupthink, and the unwillingness to engage in dialogue and, and have a, a reasonable conversation, even though one doesn't agree on an issue, that's another death we've seen obviously in many fields of life in the world, but especially in medicine, is the unwillingness of many in the profession to dialogue. Again, so many of my colleagues here are brilliant, and some of the most published academicians prior to this whole COVID issue, and all of a sudden they're not smart anymore. It, it, it's astounding, and so bringing dialogue and uncomfortable conversation back into our day-to-day our -day is so critical. You know, I'll just hypothesize here because they've also, met, most of them have seen the cost of going against, you know, the quote-unquote correct view or how you're under, so I wonder if a lot of people aren't just sort of subconsciously avoiding discovering the uncomfortable realities. I think that's a great point. They've seen what they've done to me and others and um, so many of my colleagues, if you're a tall blade of grass, you get cut down first. and. Uh, I think that's a great observation, and that's how you control a population and a profession is putting people into fear. I personally was attacked by insurance companies, of all things. So they're not regulators, um, and you know that put the squeeze on my practice. But uh, but I think you're correct. I think so many people are afraid of having to pay a consequence for telling the truth, and that that's a tragedy. We talked, you know, when we spoke last about, you know, some of the challenges you faced in, in, in your career uh, because of your, you know, the pathology that you were doing and then the positions you started to take publicly. Um, how has that developed since? Yeah, as I was alluding to, so I, I've essentially had to shut my lab down and I sold it to my associate at a fire sale price because um, the insurance companies were canceling my contracts for my unprofessional behavior. And then the boards of medicine, thankfully, I've resolved four of those with, you know, the complaints had no merit. There's one still pending and open. And again, these are third-party complaints. These are political complaints, people that don't like somebody speaking out against their narrative. And they're baseless claims. No patient has claimed any harm. Uh, again, I'm, I'm the receiving end of these absurdities. And we don't have the political will to stop these agencies run amok from being kangaroo courts and, and overstepping their legal bounds. And they're being used by CARES Act funding that went to push uh, a vaccine-only agenda, and they don't counter any of the claims I made. And so when I have to defend myself in front of these boards, which I've successfully done, and I allude to the science and say, you know, show me where I'm wrong. They don't because they know they can't. But it wastes your time. It's I an guess, absolute right? waste of money and time. Oh, t 
tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars on legal fees because I've exceeded what my malpractice insurance will cover just to protect my professional life for telling the truth. And every time I do these interviews or podcasts, I say, look, if I'm wrong, show me where, bring better data. Crickets. Nobody wants to have that difficult conversation. And again, going back to egos in medicine, they don't want to want to say, oh gosh, I could have done th something that maybe harmed my patient. Certainly I'm viewed as a heretic, but who's even worse are these colleagues who were completely in the narrative of shot only, this, that, and the other, and now have looked at the science, done that necessary reading, and now they're the apostates, not the heretic. And the apostate is, you know, in terms of uh, evangelizing truth, stronger, but also they're the bigger target now as well. And so, you know, getting philosophical about all of this stuff, it's, it's fascinating to see that here we are three years into this with a virus that has evolved into something that for most people is a common cold and shots that are expired because the variants they cover are all extinct. I mean, it's an absurdity that these shots are even on the market at all. And yet three years later, we're still seeing brilliant physicians and educators and scientists being attacked for simply calling out the truth. How much do you think the society has shifted in its view? Um, I like what Chris Martinson talks about. These conversations like this and others, we have the private knowledge where you know something's wrong, I know something's wrong and we kind of whisper together about what we've discovered and found out. But I think what's trickling out now is that common knowledge uh, that Chris Martinson talks about. Um, and, and now it's becoming common knowledge that yes, vaccine injury is real. Now it's becoming common knowledge that these shots never prevented disease and never prevented transmission. And actually, if you look at the Cleveland Clinic study, more shots you got, the more you got the disease. So people are those quiet mumblings are now becoming common mumblings. And so I would say, you know, from when we talked last many months ago, maybe 30% of the people now instead of 10% are woken up. Same thing in the profession, in medicine, it was about 10% a year ago and now it's maybe 30, 40%. And just qualify for me, the, the shots never prevented disease? I mean, well, for people with, that were older with comorbidities, there was, actually a significant effect, but you're, you're saying something different. Well, show me the double, the, the gold standard, double-blinded, placebo-controlled study making that claim. It doesn't exist. And even the trials for the shots themselves, the placebo group was quickly crossed over, so now you don't have good science. Now you're back to observational science. And the claim that it prevented you know, hospitalization, severity, and death well, maybe for a hot minute at the very beginning of the pandemic, when it, they first rolled out, it had a couple of weak effect. However, by then the virus was already mutating away from the shots that had been formulated. And by the time, you know, Comirnaty and, and Moderna Spikevax got their technical approval, that was all data that was pre-Delta variant. So the data sets are number one, corrupted because the control group is gone. Number two, it became a religious mantra. It was a mantra, safe and effective, safe and effective, decreases hospitalization and death, decreases hospitalization and death. And if you say something enough, you can convince yourself of it, but the data sets aren't there. There's some observational data that suggests it, but what, what they negate is, there's a good percentage of the population that got COVID and never knew they had COVID. 
Now they have some gene mutations. A good study recently came out and showed why that happened. But this claim that, oh, I'm glad I got my shot, my COVID would have been so much worse. Mm -hmm. well, ask all those people who got COVID and was like, oh, I had COVID? Huh, how about that? So you, you don't have that comparator group. So these claims that are made are false claims. You know, one more thing in the vein of uh, free speech, which we were talking about, it's just obvious that science, good science, depends on it. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and science is not done by consensus. Contrary to you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson on a big show recently saying, well, there is scientific consensus. I'm not interested in medical pedigree. I'm interested in medical consensus, in scientific consensus. You need someone who represents a medical consensus here, producing a consensus. And whatever is that consensus. I'm like, it was the heretics that were correct. Galileo was correct about where the sun is in the center of our solar system and not the earth. And yet he was thrown in the tower for, for being a heretic. It's that contrary voice that has to be present in science. And, and losing this construct that scientists have to have competing hypotheses, absolutely. And you need to do the test, you need to do the experiment, and you need to be able to have open questioning. And, and to, I joke, Look, all doctors and scientists agree when you censor the ones who don't. And so this construct in, in dialogue and free speech of not allowing a contrary voice to come into the conversation means science isn't being done. If you can question it, it's science. If you can't question it, it's propaganda. You know, you've been looking at not just basically, you know, the realities of the spike protein, but you've also been looking at, um, you know, kind of what's in the vials. You know, there's a lot of contamination in the, in the vials, so what, what's in the vials? Now, I've been privileged to work with a doctor in Austria, and she brought together some um, physicists who have remained quiet so they can keep doing the research. And we've looked at hundreds of vials together. I've looked at many in my lab. They looked at many. They did mass spec, Raman spectroscopy, et cetera, et cetera, a lot of analytical clinical chemistry. There are lipid nanoparticles in the vials. There are sugars. There are salts. There is mRNA in the vials. We also know that there's contaminating DNA in these vials. Hmm. And this is the work of Kevin McKernan, and it's been replicated in one lab. Um, my lab's looking at it in one other lab I know of. So again, replicability of science, replicability of findings. And so we know that these were poorly manufactured. So where does that DNA come from? You grow these sequences in bacterial cultures, E. coli, and then they produce mRNA, and then you're supposed to be able to separate it out. Well, what we're finding is that little circle of complementary DNA that makes the mRNA, the synthetic mRNA, these vials are contaminated with a percentage of that, and up to 25 to 30%. That's not good because these are little antibiotic-resistant plasmids that can actually conceptually get into the bacteria of your gut, cause antibiotic resistance in your body. Uh, that little circle of DNA can go into the nucleus and camp out there, keep producing little spike messages chronically over time. So. There are things in the vials that don't belong there. Um, some of the studies of all of the vials showed uh, metal contaminants, and some of them showed some of the metal contaminants were actually coming from rapid needle manufacture as well. We know Japan rejected two million vials of Moderna because there was visible debris in the, in the vials. 
So this was poor manufacturing. I don't know if you want to get into the graphene oxide controversy, yes or no. I can tell you a two-minute story on that. Well, actually, yeah, let, let, let's talk about that because this is one of these things that I hear. Most of the doctors I speak to just kind of look at me and say, why are you... Why are you asking me about this? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, and, and but a lot. But basically, you you hear people talking about it. There was one small group in Spain that got some vials, and there's a technique called Raman spectroscopy. And what you do is, you know, you put some of the vial content on a on a slide, and then you pick your target and you shine a laser, and it'll break down the basic elements of of what you're pointing at. Well, when you do that, you're supposed to do it for a millisecond or less because the laser's powerful, and then it'll fractionate the, the basic particles of what's there. Pablo Compras, the guy that did the Raman study, he fired his laser at a handful of targets for 30 seconds each, not a millisecond, a 30 seconds. He fried them. So if I take a little dish of creme brulee, put some sugar on top of it, and we know there's a lot of sugar in Madeira and Pfizer, and I take my little chef's torch, well, what happens to that sugar? It browns and it crisps, and if I run it too long, I scorch it, I turn it into charcoal. And what is charcoal? Charcoal is carbon, can be graphene, little oxygen. And so I can, if I fry sugar molecules, I am going to make a carbon byproduct. He burnt the toast, he burnt the creme brulee. By doing bad technique, and thankfully he published what he did, and any good physicist will say, wait a minute, you don't do this for 30 seconds, you do it for a fraction of a second. And then, and then if you look at it under electron microscopy, graphene is this regular sheet of 200 nanometer spaced little hexagons, thin flat sheets. And what the uh, Spanish study showed were 500 nanometer sheets. I'm like, that's not graphene oxide. So basic science and good scientific practice negate this argument about graphene oxide being in the vials. And then there's a Pfizer document that says, oh, graphene oxide and gold. They said, see, it's in the Pfizer documents. I'm like, no, that's a different lab doing a technique for protein isolation. They mentioned their technique, which is a gold and a graphene layering, but it has nothing to do with the manufacturing line. So there's all these red herrings. What I like to point out is there are two dangerous things in these vials. That's a lipid nanoparticle and a gene sequence that's making your body make foreign proteins. Your cells are meant to make human proteins. And so to go down these rabbit holes and distracting pathways, when we should be stopping this platform of lipid nanoparticle shots altogether, that's where the focus should be. And that's what frustrates me. Do all the science you want, hypothesize, experiment, great, that's cool. All these little hydras that people see, they're non-microscopists that have an old med school microscope sitting in a dusty room looking at their dog's hair, looking at pollen particles, looking at these hydras are actually a little piece from the bottom of a leaf. So I get frustrated that people are making claims that scare people for the which people do not need to be scared. It's scary enough that we're using a new gene-based modality with a lipid nanoparticle that goes to every organ in the body. Let's stop that. Don't worry about all this other stuff. Have your fantasy life, your fictional, explorational, hypothetical, whatever you want to do, cool. But don't make claims that don't exist based on bad science. Well, and what that also does is it creates a situation where, you know, let's say people that are actively interested in detracting against this work will conflate the two. Absolutely, and, and that, that is harmful to the cause, and I, I absolutely agree with that assertion because 
they do look a little out there, tinfoilish, and it detracts from the actual solid good science that is happening. And and I mean, my, I spoke out on this at a conference, and I literally got death threats for saying graphene oxide isn't in these vials. And to get death threats from the freedom movement, the extremists in, in the movement, um, is really concerning. I stick to science, but when you get into some of these philosophical battles in life, it's really fascinating to see where people cling to their concept and construct an idea to the detriment of their ability to critically and broadly think. Let's go back to this uh, RNA and I guess DNA as well, and then the lipid nanoparticles on the on the what the RNA produces side. I understand it's not just spike that's being produced. There's ah, yes. other elements, right? And this was a, a very good study, um, and it, it may have come from BioNTech's own paper, where they took cell culture, transfected it with the injection, and then once that cell culture starts producing the proteins that it's supposed to make, then you separate those out to say, are these cells making the target protein we want? Are they making the spike protein? And so it's supposed to weigh about 141 kilodaltons. And so we put a little electrical field on a little gel and these proteins migrate and then they stop according to their weight and electrical charge. And it was fascinating to look at that study and go, wait, we have 100 kilodalton weight proteins and 190, but nothing at 141 that would be a spike protein. So my concern scientifically is these products are making the body make unknown proteins as well to the which we could be having these autoimmune responses. and. And if you look at the vial purity, the, the purity of the mRNA in the vials, you know, if you take a drug, you want to know if I go buy an aspirin, it's actually aspirin I'm taking. I don't want half of it to be aspirin and half of it to, half of it to be laced with some other production side product that may be harmful. We know microRNAs are a known carcinogen. There's uh, medical literature showing how sequences of mRNA can either be helpful in the body, natural ones, or can be extremely harmful. And certain types of cancers, you see increased circulating microRNAs in these patients. And so to know that there are these unknown, fragmented parts of mRNA in these files is also poor manufacturing, one, but two, medically dangerous, and three, we don't know what all those things can be causing. I mean, the panoply of side effects that we're seeing in injured patients are numerous. And these are just you know, tip of the iceberg reasons why these things could be happening. So yeah, these are impure manufactured products and and other proteins could be causing the harm, not just spike protein. And this is just another area where there should be robust study, I take it. Right? Absolutely. That's right. yeah. This, yeah, the way these were rushed out societally. And they'll say, oh, we did some animal studies. I'm like, well, why am I at a conference right now where I have brilliant scientists and physicians explaining every mechanism of harm, and those weren't all in the literature from all these companies and these government agencies prior to saying, okay, this technology is safe to use. Why are we finding out after the fact, after billions of people have had it and countless millions have been injured, um, it's, it's scientifically unethical and it's unfathomable to think what we've done to humanity for a virus that ended up having 
a case fatality rate no worse than a, a flu season, other than in an elderly comorbid cohort. And we used humanity as a guinea pig in a very, very unethical manner. So it's very frustrating to see science being adulterated and science being ignored and the ethic and the moral obligation to patients absolutely thrown out the window by a profession. You know, one of the things we've discussed in the past is you were observing an uptick in certain rare cancers, also like lymphomas and th mm -hmm. things that are more, more common things like that. Um, you were noticing some kind of a bacterium that was, you know, only in childhood that was now appearing in adults. You were wondering about that. I guess has, has the literature around that, if the studies progressed anywhere, what do we know now, what are we seeing? So I'm not the only one making the claim anymore, which mm -hmm. is comforting. Mm -hmm. um, many pathologists around the world are seeing it, as you know, my colleagues in Europe have pointed it out, as I travel the world and give lectures and whatnot, I've had so many doctors, like I said last time, approach me, gosh, I'm seeing this in my population. Uh, oncologist in England that I was talking to a couple months ago, lymphomas, myelomas, leukemias, at rates he's never seen in his 40 years of practice. I was on the phone last week with a oncologist here in Texas, where we are right now, and he, you know, same thing. He has patients, he's had cancer-free, their markers are all down, they've been cancer-free for one, two, five, 10, 17, 20 years in some of these patients, and after their shot, second, third, fourth, cancer's back like wildfire. And that goes to all these immune suppression mechanisms that are multitudinous. And it's, it's trackable now in the CDC data. So there's one researcher uh, has a great substack, uh, The Ethical Skeptic. And you can see how he shows the manipulation by the CDC of their data sets. But if you do the pull forward data and look at what we call variation above trend, in the lymphomas, we're seeing you know, about a four sigma increase. And what, what does that mean exactly, a four, four sigma? sigma? So I mean, if I have 100 patients that get lymphoma out of, you know, say 100,000 every year, now I'm seeing, you know, maybe 105 patients. So, you know, it's that, it's that subtle change, hmm. but it's a statistically significant change. And then what you do is say, wait, this month it was four above the 100, now it's five above 100, now it's 12 above the 100. So you're seeing, you know, the trend should be this, historically, and what you're watching is the trend doing this. Mm. And so if you read some of the breakdowns of his data sets in some of the solid tissue tumor cancers, ages zero to 54, now what we're seeing is a 12 sigma increase. And so these, these are, are massive amounts compared to you know, statistical analysis year over year over year. The baseline, year. basically. The baseline, yeah. yeah. And you would expect, you know, okay, there's going to be some of that from people missing oncology screenings during the pandemic. I, I appreciate that argument. A degree of that is going to be true. But then look at the population zero to 54 where the cancer rate is very low to start with. All of a sudden, why are we seeing very aggressive cancers in these age cohorts. Now, this is an easy study to do if our government would be honest. HHS, HHS Health and Human Services, has the data. As physicians, we report, you know, if a doctor sees a patient in clinic, they code ICD-10 codes. Here's my code, here's what I did, I did this, I did this, I did this. They get paid for it based on code. In the laboratory, if a patient has a diagnosis, we put down a code. If it's this type of cancer, it's this code. If it's this type of cancer, it's this code. 
these all go to the government. The government has this database. They literally could go into their database. The insurance companies could do this too. And every week they could say, oh, here's the change in the data in this age group, this age group, each age decile. You could say, it's simple, simple spreadsheet analysis. Nothing to hide, show us the data, be transparent. Most governments and health agencies around the world have this ability. We look at Australia, why haven't we gotten birth data out of them for seven months? When, when we look at the birth rates in Europe, you know, 10 to 20% decrease in birth rates across most European countries. Same thing with the cancer trends. We can have good researchers tease out knowing how to look at the data systems, but why isn't the government just saying, okay, you know, your tax dollars pay for this information and pay for our agency to exist, we will give you what we have, whether we like it or not. And sometimes it, you know, that data is inconvenient because it tells the truth. But that's what matters to humanity. That's why we supposedly have these agencies is to keep us healthy and well, or at least monitor that so we can change healthcare and society. Call it anecdotal, great. But if you start looking at Bradford Hill criteria of causation and correlation, things start adding up very quickly. And, and across the board, um, you saw in the meeting today when I gave my talk, I said, raise your hand if you have a friend or a family member that after the shots ended up with a cancer. And it was astounding the number of hands that went up in that room. Is it everybody? Do I want to scare people thinking, oh, you got the shot, you're going to get cancer? No. But it's more significant statistically than it was before. And it was after the shots rolled out that this started happening for multiple immune reasons and, and other harm reasons. We've experienced a pandemic of fear. Correct. Which caused, you know, I think unarguably some of the problems that we're experiencing today. And we don't want to be part of that. Right. So, so just in terms of raw numbers, what kind of differences are we talking about in areas that you know, come to mind for you? The raw numbers are going up. The percentage numbers look scarier than the raw numbers, but the trend line is consistently going up. Take care of your body, take care of your health. So I say don't panic, but if you have risk factors, take care of those. And if you haven't had your screenings, get your screenings. You know, we're seeing things that we shouldn't. Well, so to your point, you know, I was recently talking with a physician out of Virginia, Brooke Miller, who's been, you know, treating COVID, treating some levels of vaccine injury, and he said some of the most best results he's had have had to do with very basic things like diet, lifestyle, changing those things are, are, are kind of foundational to this. Absolutely, that basic. Mm -hmm. Absolutely correct. And I, I like to joke, you know, the best medicine is the tip of your fork. So you hear this term brandished about turbo cancers. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Um, good question. Uh, it was popularized by a colleague over in Europe in an article she wrote, and she's a, a breast pathologist. I've, I've met with her at some of the national me international meetings. And in her cohort, she noticed younger women developing more aggressive cancers. And in oncology and pathology, we look at certain tumors and say, okay, they have this stage cancer, they have this grade of tumor. You know how it's going to behave over a set period of time. What's happening is these cancers we're used to seeing, their growth patterns and their behavior are completely out of character. And so this adjective that's been tacked on to cancer 
is describing a phenomenon that's unusual in the practice of medicine. Again, observationally across countless professionals around the world saying, wait a minute, I haven't seen cancer behave this way before. What's going on? So turbo cancer is something that wasn't there and all of a sudden it's everywhere. So it goes from being in one spot to everywhere all at once. And it happens in a manner that is timeline accelerated. A radiologist called me, this was many, many months back, and he had two 31-year-old women that same day come into his office for scans and they both had stage four breast cancer after their third shot. And so these are the type of stories we hear, young, healthy marathon runner, et cetera, gets his third shot, all of a sudden he has stage four lymphoma. I really like this idea of making the databases available. I think a lot of very interesting and valuable work could be done. It would probably save quite a few lives ultimately. But what, what do you think is really holding back these data sets? Is it just that it's gonna be inconvenient what these data sets will show and someone will point this out and it will be you know, disinformation in the sense that it's inconvenient information, which is increasingly what that word seems to mean? Yeah, who knows what those words mean? It means whoever is weaponizing those words to mean whatever they want them to mean and misdis malinformation. It's all just information. And whether you like it or not, it's information, but allow all the information to come out. Because, you know, again, I'll go back to Mark Twain, you know, there are lies, there are damn lies, and then there are statistics. And so allowing transparency in those data sets and making sure it's a complete data set, not excluding data. Again, one can massage the data to make it say what you want it to say. But if you use raw data and put in all the data points, whether it's convenient to whatever story you're trying to tell or not, no one should be trying to tell a story with the data other than the truth. And so I, I like that construct also. And that's where I've, I've met many brilliant mathematical colleagues who do these uh, data analyses and dive into data sets and point out the things that the agencies maybe did or didn't see, but intentionally don't report. And so it is helpful, I think, in truth-seeking to have those who are willing to make the inconvenient statements of, guess what the data is really showing? And it may be against the wishes of a government agency, a pharmaceutical company, a university's vested interest in grants or whatnot, but let the truth be transparent. You know, I've never asked you this before, actually. I re just realized I should have. But what is your reaction to the Twitter files disclosures that we've seen over past months? Well, obviously, it's highly concerning the degree of infiltration into Twitter that intelligence agencies did have and government interference did have. I'm grateful that things have opened up in terms of the ability to actually have some dialogue and get some truth out there now. But I think it's very telling that we're kind of at a precipice of freedom in terms of realizing our government will violate our own constitution and weaponize any media source they can against its own people. I think that's a highly concerning harbinger of things to come if we don't step up and stand out against that. And why do I keep speaking out? Well, because I want people to be free and I want patients to be well. And to see a government inserting itself where it doesn't belong, almost on behalf of bigger entities with financial interests, i.e. large pharmaceutical lobbies, etc., 
it's it's disturbing. So I'm grateful the Twitter files have been exposing what they have been exposing. I think there we need the Facebook files. We need, you know, you name you name the the social media source. I mean, we need the CNBC files, the MSNBC. We need all the ones that are being paid off by the government and or infiltrated by media control groups. I mean, that's why I like, you know, not, not to toot your horn, but I like Epoch, because you guys are seeking transparency and allowing a breadth of voices to actually come out and say, this is free speech, let's talk about the issues. And I mean, it's a great question. It's very frustrating to see a nation going the wrong direction. And, and then I'll go back to the curiosity question. Why are so many citizens here and in other countries not curious enough to ask the question, why can't I talk about this? I mean, that, that's what this nation was founded upon, was that ability to protest, that ability to disagree, that ability to have your voice heard. So very revealing, very revealing. You mentioned it's important to open up these databases. Um, what is the most important research that these large entities that have the money to fund, what research should begin right now that isn't happening? So basic one that CDC is supposed to report morbidity mortality trends, the MMWR, their weekly report. Like many of these data sleuths have done, they've shown us the life insurance and disability insurance data. We need to know what that excess death rate is, and every young sudden death unexpected should be autopsied. And these previous studies you and I talked about, about spike proteins and about these uh, you know, conditions happening in the body, with this new modality that's been rolled out on humanity, we need to know why there's an increase in excess deaths across a lot of age cohorts. My personal bias, yes, I want to see the cancer data sets because this is so important, not just to us, I'll be testifying in the EU Parliament next week. This is critical to the economic stability of nations in terms of knowing the death rates within your populace, especially if you're use, losing young, healthy cohorts of your populace in terms of productivity in the workplace, your tax base, your social security base, etc. So to ignore death signals and or ignore disability and cancer signals is political foolery because you're going to pay the piper down the road societally and economically if you don't focus on the facts. So I think those would be some of the basic ones to tease out of that data right up front. Well, those, and you know, we just described, those strike me as incredibly easy yes. studies to do. Yes. And I'm even, I, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, what are the, you know, double blind RCTs that need to begin right now that costs however many millions that mm -hmm. really it's the only NIH or perhaps the Gates Foundation mm -hmm. that has the money, the money to fund. What, what, what would be a study that you would feel we should launch right now? Um, or two. Okay, so I would like to see a sudden death study. So healthy young individuals from age 10 to 50, um, I would love to see every one of those individuals with no pre-existing condition, if they've had multiple injections, I would like to see a large autopsy study. Mm. Prove me right, prove me wrong. I think that's critically important, not just because of the COVID shot, because we have an avaricious pharmaceutical technology 
that has now built a $500 million factory in Kenya, has built an mRNA factory in the UK, or is building an mRNA factory in Canada, is building an mRNA factory in Australia. They're acting as though they have this permission now to use this new technology, which many of us know is very dangerous, and they want to use it for all these other pathogens, be it influenza, HIV, RSV, you name it, etc. And so we need to study why this technology is causing death before we continue to roll it out into all these other branches. They made their billions and now they think, oh, we've got billions, now we can do this and get away with it. The science isn't there to say this is safe. So I think it's important to do these sudden death studies, look at presence of you know, lipid nanoparticle by mass spec, which part of the body did it go to? Where are these genes being expressed? Because even if we look at like rat studies with MR, with lipid nanoparticle and influenza gene sequence, we're finding that that's altering the gene expression of future generations of mice and rats. So we already know it's causing genetic imprint problems. We know the technology is doing things the body isn't supposed to do. And so these data sets should be opened, obviously. That would be the easiest study to do, is just statistical analysis. I mean, that's a computer algorithm. Get a couple of smart programmers, query the databases, and boom, you got the information. But then actually doing the physical studies on um, suddenly deceased individuals in different age cohorts, looking at the tissues, finding what you find or don't find, but honestly reporting it. I think that would be critically important because it's still not happening. Like you and I talked a year ago about this. Where are the autopsies? not being done. And, and then if the autopsies are done, why aren't the laboratories doing the appropriate stains to look for causes? Well, so let's say, you know, you're someone who's gotten one shot, two shots, maybe more, mm -hmm. and you're wondering to yourself, well, there's all these unknowns, you know, some studies aren't being done. There's a few doctors trying to figure this stuff out. Doesn't seem like there's much wrong with me right now. Is, is, what, what should I be doing? Um, that's a great question. And so I, I like to start by saying, look, if you got one shot, don't get two. If you got two, don't get three. If you got three, don't get four. If you never got one, don't get one. So that's how you start. Halt the harm where it may be. And, and uh, gratefully, you know, 85% of people seem to be fine. And I think it was a Rasmussen poll, may have been a different poll, but 15 out of 100 Americans had a new chronic condition after the shots. That means 85% didn't. Now what do you do? Well, this concerns me as well. I have two older daughters or adults that made the decision. One got one J&J, another got three Modernas. She's the one I'm a little more concerned about in terms of long-term harms. They both seem to have no side effects, thankfully, like many people don't. Optimize your health. If you are in a more inflamed state, all of these different pathways of harm that the spike can induce, be it the clotting, autoimmune disease, um, immune suppression, et cetera, et cetera. Again, tip of your fork, what are you putting in, what are you not, what's your vitamin D level? Are you moving your body enough to optimize physical activity and health there? There's supplements one can take. Um, I won't long list those. I'll refer to my colleagues at the FLCCC because they have good long lists of things one can do. And I think minimizing our exposure to excessively industrialized products, be they chemicals, be they foods that are sprayed with pesticides. Um, I, I think getting back to 
who we are naturally as human beings and not being dependent on big agra or big pharma or big industry to make our lives more convenient at the long-term cost of our health and wellness. So, you know, fasting several days a week is one thing, near-infrared light. I would like to see America become less insulin resistant, less obese. I would like to see us actually emphasize public health as a nation instead of focusing on convenience and profits and greed. And I mean, the healthier the nation is, the happier the nation is. Well, Dr. Ryan Cole, it's such a pleasure to have you on again. Always an honor, thank you. Thank you all for joining Dr. Ryan Cole and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Mm -hmm.